Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. This podcast is part two to Teddy Roosevelt and we continue his presidency as well as his post-presidency contributions. He was considered a conservationist, created wildlife preserves, and he is a prominent figure at both the Museum of Natural History as well as the Smithsonian. Many of you actually may recall the movie A Night at the Museum, which featured the late, great Robin Williams playing the role of Teddy Roosevelt. It's a fun movie if you if you haven't seen it. Fun fact, teddy bears get their name from Teddy Roosevelt. Learn that and more from our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So we cannot talk about Teddy Roosevelt without mentioning conservation. TR's love for the natural world started as a young boy. He drew pictures of animals and wildlife. He even had small birds and animals that he preserved himself. Many specimens at both the American Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian are animals that were hunted by Teddy Roosevelt and preserved. He took lessons in taxidermy as a young teenager. His legacy for conservation is one that is hotly debated, particularly due to his love of hunting. A 1902 hunting trip in Mississippi, where the trip had pretty much come to an end without the president having been able to get anything, the guides tied an injured bear to a tree for the president to shoot. He refused. The story ran in newspapers and a candy shop owner in Brooklyn, New York, of all places, asked that the pre- with the president's permission to name two stuffed bears that his wife had sewn as Teddy's bears. And the name stuck and the toy became and remains very popular. So that's where the name Teddy Bears comes from. If you go to the United States Department of Interior's website, They have a great write-up on the role that Teddy Roosevelt played in conservation. The numbers are really astounding, and they speak for themselves. He helped to establish 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments. From his early years, Roosevelt loved nature, and he wrote to John Muir when he was president, and he asked him to take him camping out in Yosemite. The two spent a few nights camping, and it's believed that that trip inspired him to work to preserve America's vast wilderness for future generations, and thank goodness that he did. In a speech given in Kansas in 1910, President Roosevelt stated the following. There is a delight in the hardy life of the open. There are no words that can tell the hidden spirit of the wilderness that can reveal its mystery, its melancholy and its charm. The nation behaves well if it treats the natural resources as assets, which it must turn over to the next generation, increased and not impaired in value. John Muir was another important conservationist, more extreme in his thinking than Pinchot, who we'll talk about in a minute. 
John Muir is sometimes referred to as the father of national parks, and his work helped to preserve many parts of our national parks that exist today. And if you've ever gone to Muir Woods, I have gone to Muir Woods. It's beautiful in San Francisco. I have. It's right across the Golden Gate Bridge, right across it. Yes. And I only had a pair of flip flops to walk in through Muir Woods, but I did it and it was great. That'll make for that'll make for tough sledding. Well, yeah, but it was all right. I had a drink afterwards. I was fine. In addition to land preservation, he also understood the importance of infrastructure and its ability to improve life for those living in the western half of the United States, which he had, you know, prime knowledge of because he lived in the West for a time. In 1902, the New Lands Reclamation Act was passed. Roosevelt knew about the scarcity of water in the West from his time living there. And this law helped to plan and design irrigation projects that would allow hot and dry Western states to be settled. This law, which is rarely talked about, is second only to the Homestead Act in aiding the development of the Western United States. One of the projects was the Roosevelt Dam along the Salt River in Arizona. It cost $10 million and it was completed in 1911. I feel like I should mention it was not named the Roosevelt Dam until 1959. Another major irrigation project from that act is the Imperial Dam along the Colorado River, which helps to bring needed water to various parts of California. So it was a very important bill. He also created the U.S. Forest Service in 1905 under the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it was led by a man named Gifford Pinchot. He was from a wealthy family. He studied forestry in France. There was no schools that had programs on this in the United States at the time. And Gifford Pinchot was one of the greatest minds in conservation. The mission of the Forest Service is to sustain healthy, diverse, and productive forests and grasslands for future generations. Gifford Pinchot saw the number of acres of national forests go from 56 million to 172 million acres. And today, just to give you an idea, the Forest Service protects 193 million acres of land. In the presidential election of 1904, Roosevelt ran against Democratic candidate named Alton Parker, And Roosevelt won in a landslide victory. There's a reason why you never heard that guy's name before. He promised to step down after his second term. It was not yet a constitutional requirement for him to do so, only a precedent, right? An example that is followed as if it were a law. He regretted making that promise, but he stepped aside willingly, right? He would run again, however, for a third term, a non-consecutive third term. But four years later, when his hand-picked successor of sorts, William Howard Taft, wasn't as progressive as he would have liked him to have been. His split of the Republican Party allows Woodrow Wilson to win the election in 1912, but we'll get more into that at another time. So let's discuss his second term. To his inauguration, oddly enough, he wore a ring with a locket of Lincoln's hair in it. It was given to him by his secretary of state, John Hay, who had also been Lincoln's private secretary. I don't know about you. I always find that little like 
putting a locket of your hair in something in something and giving it to somebody. It's just a weird, creepy gift, but it was a thing to do then. In his inaugural address, he touted his triumphs of the last four years, and he set out to achieve more. I do want to mention a 1905 U.S. Supreme Court case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. The case deals with compulsory vaccination laws. In 1902, due to a smallpox outbreak in Massachusetts, the state required vaccination against smallpox. Those who did not comply were fined. It was $5. Today, that would be the equivalent of about a of a $100 fine. A man by the name of Henning Jacobson, who had refused vaccination and was fined, sued. He appealed the lower court's decision, and the Supreme Court upheld the right of a state to impose vaccination requirements during an epidemic. And within the court's decision, they stated the following, and this is a direct quote, there is, of course, a sphere within which the individual may assert the supremacy of his own will and rightfully dispute the authority of any human government, especially of any free government existing under a written constitution. But it is equally true that in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of the individual in respect of his liberty may at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint, to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the general public may demand, end quote. In addition, they also included a word of caution. The court also recognized the importance of medical exemptions in circumstances where the vaccination could lead to medical issues or death of an individual. So if you are looking for an example in history that links to what is happening today with the process that's being seen to vaccinate the country's population against COVID-19, even the world, this is a great example that could certainly be used in a class debate. Another major accomplishment during his presidency was the work he did to modernize the Navy or the Great White Fleet as it became known. His impact on the Navy starts as early as his college years with his book on the Naval War of 1812 and it continued up until his death. As president, he hoped to reorganize the Navy. He divided the Navy into three fleets in order to improve its efficiency. So they had the Atlantic fleet, which included all of the battleships, the Pacific fleet, and the Asiatic fleet. The new and improved U.S. Navy went on a 14-month-long world tour. Yes, it showed the might of the military capabilities of the United States, but it also allowed for an incredible amount of experience and improvement with the use of practice exercises and knowledge gained from traveling at sea. I mean, imagine the sight of 16 battleships all flying, all flying, all sailing at the same time. You know, just the other day, these three military grade helicopters flew over where I lived. And I can't tell you the sound that it made. 
And the sight of seeing, I mean, I ran, I mean, the whole house was shaking. I ran outside to see what was happening. And just the sight of those three military grade helicopters was enough for people in the neighborhood to say, you know, what's going on, what's happening here. Imagine seeing 16 battleships off the coast of wherever you're living in the world, right? In regards to foreign affairs, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president when the United States has just recently become an imperial power. How do we manage this territory? How do we earn our place as a global power and gain equal footing with European powerhouses? This is no easy feat. Once upon a time, when it came to our foreign policy, the United States followed a policy of neutrality and isolationism. That is no longer the case. While he was still vice president in early September of 1901, TR was giving a speech at a state fair in Minnesota. In his speech, he stated a number of different things. You know, ever the politician, TR stated, and this is a direct quote, we have but little room among our people for the timid, the irresolute, and the idle. And it is no less true that there is scant room in the world at large for the nation with mighty thews that dares not be great, end quote. And he goes on to say things like you, the sons of pioneers, right? He's in Minnesota. What a thing to say. If you are true to your ancestry, you must make your lives as worthy as they made theirs. But it is this soundbite that outlines his foreign policy. And this is another full direct quote. A good many of you are probably acquainted with the old proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. If a man continually blusters, if he lacks civility, a big stick will not save him from trouble and neither will speaking softly avail. If back of the softness, there does not lie strength, power. Whenever on any point we come in contact with a foreign power, I hope that we shall always strive to speak courteously and respectfully of that foreign power, end quote. He talks of all the good that the United States has done in places like Cuba and the Philippines. He talks about how at one time the land that they were standing on was once Indian territory. And even though some terrible things were done to natives and natives to settlers, it was a necessary evil because the United States brought civilization to that area. Now, in 2021, this is a statement with a lot of ammunition. You are talking about early 1900s where you know, Rudyard Kipling, take up the white man's burden is widely accepted as being the status quo. So this idea that there are barbarians and those who are civilized, and that it's the duty of the civilized to bring civilization to others, right? This becomes known as the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. This idea of we will start with the nice way first, but there is also this unspoken threat, a promise even, of force to get what we want. You know, consider the story of the world tour of the Great White Fleet that they went on that we just discussed a few minutes ago. Look at what we are ready and capable of bringing to your shores. 
These are not empty words. He practiced what he preached. And we'll talk about a number of different foreign policy issues during his presidency. In 1904, a few years into his presidency, in a message to Congress, he issued what would become known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. It stated that the United States would intervene as a last resort to ensure that other nations in the Western Hemisphere fulfilled their obligations to international creditors and did not violate the rights of the United States or invite foreign aggression to the detriment of the entire body of American nations, as he said. This was made in response to a number of countries in Latin America, specifically the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, who had stopped paying back their debts to European countries. This message that European countries shouldn't intervene in this part of the world, that if there are debts to be paid, we, the United States, will handle it and we will make sure things are being taken care of. So we kind of put this fence around the Western Hemisphere and we say, this is our neighborhood. Mind your business. If anything's going down, we're going to take care of it. Now, on the one hand, European powers are getting some insurance that they will get their money back. But on the other hand, this is a bold statement to make to European powers. Future presidents will also use the Roosevelt Corollary to justify their intervention in Latin America. And if you look at this from a Latin American perspective, which you should, the United States is becoming a neighbor that you start to worry about, maybe even begin to distrust. What are your motives? You know, we can handle our own affairs. These were somewhat newly independent nations. And if anyone was going to influence or direct or steer foreign affairs in this region, it was going to be the United States. All right. So the Panama Canal can't talk about Teddy Roosevelt without talking about the Panama Canal. Now, this is a long story worthy of a soap opera plot to understand what went down in the early 1900s and how shady it was. We have to go back in time a little bit. In the 1820s, many countries in South and Central America gained their independence from Spain. At one time, countries like Panama, Ecuador, Venezuela were all a part of Colombia, which at the time was known as Gran Colombia. Ecuador and Venezuela became independent countries in the 1830s, but Panama remains a part of Colombia. There had been long interest in building a canal through the Isthmus of Panama in order to shorten the length of time that it took to travel and move goods and be able to avoid having to go around the tip of South America. Now, Jeannie, you know, we talked about the, uh, the building of the canal in the podcast about the San Francisco gold rush yes. and how they were able to cut down the time and get everything over there. So. This is appropriate. Yes. So Ferdinand de Lesseps, a Frenchman who had helped to build the Suez Canal in Egypt, felt that a canal in Panama could make him and other investors rich, just as the canal in Egypt had done. The French began to dig a canal in 1882. Not only did they have to dig through miles and miles of land that you would imagine they would have to, you know, mountains. But there was also a river and dense jungle that they had to contend with. 
That. And they thought they also thought, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. They thought they'd be able to build the canal in the same manner that they built the Suez Canal by having kind of a straight path through. Yes. The, the idea of the lock system by going up and down the mountains, they were trying to go through it, which they eventually failed, which I'm sure you're going to get into. Yes. And they also had made this plan without visiting the area first, right, themselves. So that matched with a rainy season and diseases like malaria and yellow fever made the task close to impossible. And it led to incredibly high death tolls for the workers. By 1888, French investors had enough of the painstakingly slow progress, the loss of money. And by loss of money, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, the high death toll. As the United States began to work to obtain the rights to build a canal to connect the Atlantic and Pacific oceans, we were also seriously considering a route through Nicaragua. A natural disaster in that country kind of shifted our focus back to Panama. The United States began serious negotiations with Colombia, but their government didn't recognize a treaty we had drawn up. Panama wanted the canal and the United States knew it. Colombia was stalling in the hopes of getting the United States to agree to more favorable terms, especially getting more money per year for the lease of the land. The Panama Canal Company, which was a United States French-owned business, supported a faction within Panama that sought independence. In early November of 1903, Panama declared its independence from Colombia. It was implied that if the Panamanians rebelled, the United States would support their cause. The United States was the first country to recognize the Republic of Panama. And the United States then sent a warship to Panama to prevent Colombia from regaining its territory. I told you, shady soap opera plot. In less than two weeks, the United States and Panama signed a treaty. In exchange for securing its independence, the United States would be given the right to build a canal and the United States would pay Panama $10 million and a yearly lease of $250,000 per year. The United States also paid $40 million to the original French company who had started building the canal. And just to give you an idea of Colombia's reaction to this, Colombia did not recognize Panama's independence until 1921. Sour grapes, sour grapes. Yes. When the United States took over this massive project, they had the advantage of learning from the mistakes of the French attempt. They knew they had to deal with the issue of diseases like yellow fever and malaria before they could start with the work of constructing the canal. This meant getting rid of standing water wherever it was possible, you know, paving roads, pesticides to kill the mosquitoes, It's estimated that it cost the United States $10 a mosquito. Now, when I read that fact, it kind of made me laugh because all I pictured in my head was like somebody like zapping mosquitoes or, you know, hitting them with their hands and just seeing a toll, like a tally of money, like cha-ching, cha-ching, like $10, keep going. 10 bucks. (laughs) In 1906, 
President Roosevelt traveled to Panama to see the progress for himself. It was the first time a sitting president traveled to a foreign country. While most canals at the time were sea level canals, and the original French plan was to build a sea level canal in Panama, as Jim mentioned, the army engineers instead recommended a lock dam system for the canal. Is that like having a, a dam lock system? Like it a is. Dam tour? It and, is uh, for a dam tour. We're going to go on the dam tour. Some American citizens went and helped to build the canal, but there was a considerable labor force from a variety of Latin American countries who were paid much less than their white than their white counterparts. And they were provided with housing that wasn't nearly as nice as those of the white workers. The U.S. design for the canal called for a series of gates and locks that would raise ships 85 feet above sea level and allow the ship to pass through a man-made lake. The United States not only built the canal, but also a dam and a man-made lake. This design would not only save time, but money as well. And it took 10 years for the United States to build the canal, and it is believed to have cost $375 million to build. By no, wait, wait, can I jump in and, yeah. and just talk about my sure. experience of going through the canal? Because mm-hmm. we were going from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and it's very, you know, they, they did this early in the morning. So if you wanted to see it, you had to get up and you had to, um, to go out on the deck of the ship and you would pull into the first lock the gates behind you would close and it would be a tall gate behind you. And then the water would fill up. The ship would rise in the water and then the lock in front of you would open. You would sail through and then the lock would close and then they would lower the water for the next ship to come in and go into the next lock. And then you did this a couple of times going up and then the opposite would happen when you were going down and you would, you would kind of come through. You would, well, the, the, the lake is at the top. So you would go up, you would go into the lake, and then you would make your way to the other side. We just kind of went up the one side, hung out in the lake for a little bit, and then we turned around and we went back down to the Atlantic Ocean. It was just kind of going through the, the canal just for the sake of going through the canal to kind of have that be part of the, the trip. But it was very cool to go and see. I would encourage people to, to go and check it out. You can see it on land too if you just go to Panama. But to do it in a ship is it's pretty cool. Very cool. By 1914, the dream of a canal connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans had been realized. Even after the canal was completed, the canal zone remained segregated. Panamanians weren't allowed in the canal zone after dark unless they had business in the area. The United States maintained control over the canal until 1999. Today, it is controlled by Panama. And just to give you an idea of how much money is made each year from the canal, in 2020, $2.7 billion in toll revenue was generated by the canal. So when you hear numbers like it cost the United States $375 million to build, and that the United States paid Panama $10 million and $250,000 a year. In 2020, it made $2.7 billion. So, you know, you think about how Colombia was kind of waiting it out a bit to get more favorable terms. 
you have to consider all those things. So big money in the Panama Canal. They reason, yeah, they turned it over to uh, to Panama. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. We have to talk about another major foreign policy issue during Roosevelt's term, and that was the Russo-Japanese War. Did you ever hear about the Russo-Japanese War, Jim? I have. You have. Well, that that is good because most people have not. So the Russo-Japanese War was fought between the empires of Russia and Japan from 1904 to 1905. Russia was in need of warm water ports, not only for trade, but for growing its navy. The areas of interest for both countries were Manchuria in China and Korea. This is the age of imperialism. Both empires are looking to extend their reach and power. Japan is an emerging power. They are newly industrialized and they have just you know, recently ended decades of isolation. They need raw materials. They need markets for their goods and they need natural resources. Japan attacked Russian ships in Manchuria and declared war on Russia. Japan had the upper hand in a number of battles and the war in Russia was pretty unpopular. And the czar in Russia would not back down. It saw it as a huge embarrassment. And in a few short years, as we know now, revolution will break out in Russia and the czar will be dead. The conflict ended with the Treaty of Portsmouth. Negotiations took place in Portsmouth, Maine, and it was mediated by President Theodore Roosevelt. In the treaty, Russia gave up Port Arthur, Port Arthur and left Manchuria, while Russia recognized Japan's control over Korea, they refused to pay reparations to Japan. The Treaty of Portsmouth was unpopular in both Russia and Japan, each feeling that they had been cheated out of something. President Roosevelt, however, earned serious diplomatic street cred for his role in the negotiations, and he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, and he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for helping to end the war between Japan and Russia. And it was also the first Nobel Peace Prize that was awarded to an American citizen. So lots of fun facts there. It wasn't a very long war, but, you know. No, but a lot of people don't know about it. The Gentleman's Agreement with Japan, Got it. We're, while we're on the topic of Japan, Gentleman's Agreement of 1907, it was created out of growing anger and tensions over the influx of Japanese immigrants coming into the United States. Similar to the treatment experienced by Chinese immigrants, Japanese workers faced discrimination, violence, and new the segregation of school-aged children who were living in San Francisco. In this agreement, Japan agreed not to issue passports to workers looking to emigrate to the United States. And in return, President Roosevelt agreed to work with San Francisco and have it repeal the order to segregate Japanese children from white students in schools. Now we have to talk about the time for the election of 1908. So when it came time for campaigning to begin for the election of 1908, President Roosevelt remained true to his word that he would only serve two terms. Many historians have suggested that this was a promise he regretted making as he felt he had more he wanted to accomplish. 
Roosevelt persuaded the Republican Party to nominate his friend and chosen successor, William Howard Taft. Taft was Roosevelt's Secretary of War, and he felt Taft would continue the progressive policies of his administration. Taft won the election by an overwhelming majority. His support of Taft wouldn't last long, and he ran against him for president in 1912. A third party candidate, he ran unsuccessfully, and an assassination attempt was made on Teddy Roosevelt's life while en route to give a speech. The bullet hit the 50-page speech that was folded in his pocket. In true Roosevelt fashion, he went and made the speech first before going to the hospital. The lengthy speech, an eyeglass case, along with his thick coat, likely saved his life, and the bullet missed his heart and his lungs. However, he was sure to, you know, when he got up to the podium, open up that big, thick, heavy coat and show the crowd his blood-stained shirt, announcing, please be quiet, I've just been shot, right? Ever, ever the showman, ever the performer. His post-presidency career lasted 10 years. His first order of business was an African safari with his son, Kermit. This trip ended up lasting 14 months. This is where many people have a hard time calling Roosevelt a conservationist. His love for hunting and the amount of animals he hunted make it hard for some to call him that. Since a young boy, well, since he was a young boy, I should say, he believed in the necessity to collect specimens of animals, especially ones that were close to becoming endangered or extinct. In 1908, he referred to himself as a faunal naturalist. He believed that by preserving these animals and writing histories of them, He was providing a way for future generations to study them. It's also important to note that many of the specimens he collected ended up on his wall or in the floors of his home. His African safari was commissioned as a scientific expedition by the Smithsonian Institution. The museum paid for a portion of the trip And Roosevelt believed that a book he planned on writing afterwards would pay for the remainder of it. And it did. Writing is how he supported himself and his family in his post-political career. Over 11,000 animals. Now we're talking different types of insects to large game animals like elephants, hippos, and white rhinos. And if you go to uh, TheodoreRoosevelt.org, it talks a lot about this trip. And this is a direct quote from that website. Roosevelt and his colleagues also chronicled the wildlife and habitat of the region and collected specimens that formed the basis of the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum collection. Several of these animals displayed for many years in the Smithsonian. Many of Roosevelt's specimens remain on display at the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. So you can go and you can see them. After the safari, he traveled extensively throughout Europe and his wife, uh, and he was with his wife, Edith. While there, King Edward VII of England died. And at the request of President Taft, 
FDR represented the United States government at the funeral. It afforded him the opportunity to speak with all the crowned heads of Europe, and he was not too impressed with the pomp and the pageantry, and he is believed to have said of the encounter, if I met one more king, I should bite him. Now, you have to understand, this is just a few short years before World War I will break out. And while in Europe, he also accepted his Nobel Peace Prize. He received a hero's welcome upon his return to the United States in 1910, complete with a ticker tape parade in New York City. His trip to Africa and Europe was followed by a trip to South America after his failed attempt to retake the presidency. To take the sting out of losing the election of 1912, he traveled through South America. He impressively traveled down the Duvida River in Brazil. It was once known as the River of Doubt. Today, it is known as the Roosevelt River. The river at the time was unmapped. And Roosevelt, along with other explorers and scientists, hoped to figure out how it flowed to the Amazon. Never one to go on a boring or relaxing vacation, Roosevelt battled malaria and a variety of natural dangers on the trip. When asked why he would go on such an excursion, he responded, it was my last chance to be a boy. Always young at heart, always ready for an adventure. With the outbreak of World War I, Teddy Roosevelt supported U.S. involvement in the war, and he disagreed with Wilson's policy of neutrality, and he was outspoken against it. He had petitioned the government to allow him to organize a volunteer regiment, just as he had done during the Spanish-American War. His request was denied. Wilson supported instead the Selective Service Act, which, which created a draft right, of eligible men ready to fight. In 1917, when the United States did get involved, all four of Roosevelt's sons enlisted and his youngest son, Quentin, died in action. You know, T.R. was a devoted father and Roosevelt was devastated at the death of his son. And the last months of his life were really marred by deep, deep sadness. Theodore Roosevelt died unexpectedly on January 6, 1919, at his home at Sagamore Hill in Oyster Bay, New York. And he died at the age of 60. Think about how young that is, right? 60. That is amazing to me. Look at all he accomplished in 60 years. Upon hearing the news of his father's death, his son Archie replied, the old lion is dead. Although my favorite quote about Teddy Roosevelt comes from his daughter, Alice, his firstborn. He said he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I mean, how funny is that, right? She had a lot of great one-liners. She was a pistol. The press loved her as they did her father. He knew how to use the media to his advantage. The nation was shocked to hear of his death. Flags on both land and sea were flown at half-mast and Wilson's vice president, a man by the name of Thomas R. Marshall, said, death had to take Roosevelt sleeping, for if he had been awake, there would have been a fight. Roosevelt is buried in Oyster Bay, New York. He once said of his life, no man has had a happier life than I have led, a happier life in every way. Wow, what a great American and, and taken 
fairly too soon. I did not realize that he passed away at 60 years old. Okay, for those of you that follow our podcast and know any history teachers, please tell them to go to our website and register for our history happy hours. We're going to start having them come the springtime where we share some lesson plan ideas as well as some cocktails and good old-fashioned history conversation. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.